Lord, we just thank you for the chance to spend some time uh, with you in your word, Lord. And uh, I thank you, God, that even as we're going to see here this morning, that your disciples equated the scripture with the words of Jesus. And we do too, Lord. We love the written word because the written word leads us to the living word, Jesus. And Lord, it's our desire to uh, draw near to you this morning, to capture uh, your heart, Lord, and to allow you to capture our heart. And so, God, we just come. We, we pray that your spirit would do a work in us. And, uh, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear you, Lord, that you would anoint uh, the teaching of your word this morning and that we would just get a sense of that which John and which your Holy Spirit ultimately is seeking to communicate to us this morning. So, Lord, we just open our hearts to you and ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. So, uh, yeah, we looked at the first half of John chapter 2 last Sunday in which uh, is recorded the first miracle that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. John called it a sign at this, uh, at this wedding. And uh, the, the story is this, just maybe just to review quickly for those who weren't here or if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus and his disciples went and they attended this wedding and at the wedding, a festival that went on for a, a whole week, you know, a, a wedding ceremony and a reception and a bachelor's party and a wedding shower and a bridal shower and the whole deal, a honeymoon, all wrapped into one big long event. Uh, this happened that the, that the wine ran out. And so Jesus' mom stepped in and she asked her son to do something. And we, we read in the early part of this chapter last week that, that Jesus did. He instructed the servants to take six stone water jars that were like 20 to 30 gallons a piece to fill them with water. And then when they had done so, to, to draw some of the water out and to take it to the master of the feast. And when they did, this water had been transformed miraculously to wine. And when the master of the ceremonies uh, drank this wine, he called over the bridegroom and he said, everyone saves uh, Serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, they, they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. And John told us that this miracle was the first of all the signs that Jesus did. And, and specifically in this one, he manifested his glory. His disciples saw his glory. And we chatted about that last week. They believed in him. And so John chapter 2 tells us that from this wedding in the village of Cana, they travel from Capernaum. Jesus with his mother and his brothers and his sisters and his disciples, they go down to Capernaum. Capernaum's this sweet little spot like Lower Gibson's right on the Sea of Galilee, this nice little town. And there they spend a few days and we pick it up in John's gospel in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and, the ox and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. You get this picture in your mind, eh? So, so much for sweet little Jesus that we picture. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they said to him, 
So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus and the boys, the, the crew, his disciples are in Capernaum. They've settled down there for a few days and the season of Passover comes upon them. Passover was an annual religious festival in which the Jews recounted God's deliverance for them from slavery in Egypt, the protection that God brought for them from the angel of death when he visited the 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 homes of the families of the Egyptians in the final plague, a plague of death. And I know that you know that story, but at that time, what happened was this. Moses was instructed. He instructed each Israelite household that they were to get a lamb, that they were to sacrifice that lamb, and that they were to take its blood and they were to paint the blood over the lintel and the doorframe of that house. And then they were to stay indoors and they were to roast that lamb and have a family kneel together and stay indoors. And while they did, the angel of death came over uh, Egypt that night. And when he would come to their home, he would see the blood on the doorpost and the lintel and he would pass over that home. That's where that name Passover comes from. And they would be protected from death because of the blood of the lamb. But amongst the homes of the Egyptians where there was no blood, the angel of death came and took the firstborn male of every family. It's hard to imagine that when we, when we think about that, just how devastating that would be in my household. You know, I'm the firstborn of my siblings. My son Jonah is a firstborn, so two out of five gone in our household. But under the homes of the Israelites, they were protected by the blood of the lamb. And so it seems like kind of this strange thing when you stop and think about it and, and sometimes we, we just get so accustomed to hearing these stories in church, we don't think about it, but it's pretty barbaric to paint blood on your doorpost. Like imagine going home and doing that today. It's a bit of a, a different custom and picture to us, that, but, but what the picture was this is that the life of that lamb served as a substitution for those in the household. They were protected and they were covered by the blood of that lamb. That lamb gave its life for their lives and they were delivered from death. And that was the final plague that we see in the book of Exodus that came upon uh, the Egyptian nation. And it was at that point that when their households were visited by the angel of death, sorrow and grief filled their homes, filled the home and the palace of, of Pharaoh and Miraculously, the homes of the Hebrew slaves were, were protected and it was the straw that broke Pharaoh's back and his resistance to let God's people go and he finally told Moses, get out of here. I've had enough of you guys. Go and worship your God. And they made their exodus, the Israelites made their exodus from slavery in Egypt. From then on, year after year, the law instructed that they were to celebrate Passover annually. And they would do that with feasts and festivals and eating and sacrifice in which they would recount the faithfulness of God. They would offer sacrifices to him at his temple, at his temple in Jerusalem. 
And it was required that every mature Jewish male attend Passover at the temple. So much so that the, the city of Jerusalem, well, it says this. It actually says this, that Jesus and his disciples, they went up to Jerusalem, up. It's a cool, it's a cool picture that whenever you read in the scripture about the journey to Jerusalem, it never says they went down to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's a spiritual journey that you're making. Not only is the, the city of Zion in the mountains of, of Judea, but you, you never go down to the house of the Lord. You know, maybe we came here to worship this morning, you drove down into Laura Gibson's. But spiritually speaking, it was a journey upwards. Do you know what I'm saying? And that was the picture always in the scripture of going to the house of the Lord. You go up. Because you are preparing your heart for worship. You're preparing your heart to meet with the Lord. You're preparing your heart to present sacrifices, and so you travel up. Now, at Passover, Jerusalem would explode. The city would just totally explode. Again, it's hard for us to imagine, but this city of 60,000 people would swell to 2.5 million. It's crazy to think about that. It's like the entire population of the upper and lower Sunshine Coast in one smaller area and then all of the lower mainland coming to that area. And it would swell. It would be a time with family and a time to celebrate the holiday and a time to worship God. And it was a, a highlight on the calendar to recount his faithfulness. And, and I think for a lot of them it was religious obligation. But for many more it wasn't any obligation. It was just a joy. A time to be together. A time to celebrate. A time to have holiday time to eat together, a time to see old friends and family. And it was a time also that they would do this. They would come and they would bring their, their annual, it was called a temple tax, their annual offering that each uh, adult over the age of 20 would bring to the temple to help with the operation of the temple. It was called the, the, the temple tax or the half, half shekel tax. And the, the temple tax was required annually and it was brought to make atonement. But the atonement was equal for everybody. Everybody paid the same thing. A half a shekel. This is the tax that, you remember the story of Jesus when, when the tax collector came and asked his disciples, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And then Jesus, Peter came and asked him and Jesus said, go, go, catch, go cast your line in the Sea of Galilee and the first fish you pull out, you'll find a coin in its mouth and present it to that tax collector and pay our tax. And that coin was worth four drachmas. It was the, it was the temple tax for two people. And so Peter, Peter paid it. So this was like an annual thing as part of Passover that, that you were helping with the operation of the temple. And not only that, at Passover, besides that, the Jews would bring sacrifices. They would bring oxen, sheep, pigeons, we read here, or doves to be sacrificed at the temple. A lot of it had to do with your own personal means. You know, if you're wealthy, then maybe an oxen. If you're poor, then maybe a pigeon. And so here comes Jesus from Capernaum with his disciples. They're making the journey up to Jerusalem. And as they neared Jerusalem, they would have been singing. I wanted to just paint a picture of all this this morning. They would have been singing the Psalms of Ascent. That's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They would have just been going through 
the Psalms. Like just like we sang five songs this morning, they probably worked their way through all 14 of those Psalms because they're short little Psalms. And they're singing and they're preparing their hearts to be in worship. They sang one, Psalm 120, deliver me, O Lord. It's a song. You think about Passover, deliver me, Lord. They sang Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord. They sang Psalm 122, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And Psalm 123, which says our eyes look to the Lord. We set our eyes on you, Lord. They sang how their help is in the Lord and that the Lord surround his peop- surrounds his people. And they sang about the Lord restoring the fortunes of his people. And they sang that unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor in vain. Psalm 124, 125, 126, and 127. They sang, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, Psalm 128. They they sang that even if I've been afflicted, my soul waits for the Lord and that I calm and quiet my soul because the Lord has chosen Zion. Psalm 129, 130, 131, and 132. They sang about how it's good when brothers come together in unity, Psalm 123. They said, Come, let's bless the Lord, Psalm 134. And, and, and so in our minds, this, is, this isn't just you know, a road trip to Jerusalem. They're going up to worship. And there's preparation. Maybe you've been in the car and you, you go on a family road trip and you put the worship on and the family worships together and it's like a sweet time. That's Jesus and his disciples. They're getting ready to go to the house of the Lord and, and all the others that were going there too. And so as they made their way up to Jerusalem, it was an exciting time to be with God. It was an exciting time to be with his people. And Jesus, just like anyone else, I think, had great excitement to go to the house of the Lord. It makes me think of when that story that we read about in the Gospels of when he was 12 years old on one of those trips with his mother and, and, and Joseph. He was mistakenly left behind in Jerusalem and his parents left thinking that Uh, He was traveling with them and their party and their family and their friends and several days go by and they realize, hey, where's 12-year-old Jesus? And so Mary and Joseph turn around and they go back to Jerusalem and where do they find their 12-year-old son? In the temple, around the teachers of the law, with the priests, talking about the things of God and amazing them with his knowledge of the things of God. And so for Jesus, it was a joy to go to the temple, especially at Passover, you have to think that. I mean, he knew why he'd come. He had come to present himself ultimately as the Passover lamb. And so to go and to celebrate Passover, going, man, I am going to be the fulfillment of this whole thing. I'm God's plan for this. I'm the lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. I am the fulfillment of everything that is going to be celebrated, and these people don't even know that this this week. My disciples don't know this this week as we go there. And so he and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem and they make their way to the house of the Lord and we read in verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now in front of the temple, um, actually Calvin, I'm going to get you to flash this up right now because I got a picture of it this morning. I wasn't going to show it now, but it's probably better that you, that you see it while I'm talking. There we go. There's the temple. Right in the middle with the golden 
cap around the top of it is the temple. And so the temple was surrounded by these courtyards. The first courtyard that was the most outer courtyard towards the temple was the court of, of the Gentiles. It was accessible to everyone. People of all nations. It wasn't just for the Israelites. It wasn't just for men or just for women. The court of the Gentiles was open for all to come and to get near to God. And next to that court was called the court of the Israelites. Or sometimes we call it the court of the women. Um, only Israelites were able to go into that court. And so there was a separation with a fence that divided that and a gate. And so you'd have to go through the gate from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Israelites. Beyond that, there was a, a third courtyard. And that was the court of the men. And so now at this point, the women couldn't come any further. But there was a fence dividing and a gate. And the men could go into worship. And then there was a closer courtyard. And that was the courtyard of the priests, which only male Jewish priests had access to that court and were allowed admitted to, to, to enter there. And when Jesus came into the temple, when we read about that, when we read about him coming into the temple, he's not going into the very building there. He's coming into the courtyard of the Gentiles, that outer courtyard where all nations can come. Men, women, Gentiles, Jews, anyone is able to come into that, that courtyard. And there they were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and doves. Now, why were they doing that? Well, the, the reason why they were doing that is because the priests were full of greed. The priests themselves had covetous hearts. I mean, they wanted more um, money. They wanted to line their coffers. They wanted to control what was going on. And these religious leaders wanted, wanted more money to fill their own wallets. And so what had happened was this. They'd set up a whole racket, man, a scheme in the court of the Gentiles. Let's say you arrived at the temple. You'd come your way and you, you bring your oxen. You pick out your oxen from your herd or you pick out your lamb from your flock or you, you, you get a pigeon and you bring this and you're going to sacrifice it to the Lord and it's to be inspected. It had to be inspected by the priest. And so the priest would do this. He would look over your sacrifice and he'd find some flaw. He'd find some blemish in it. It'd be microscopic. You're like, really? You just found what? <laughs> and the priest would, would say, you know, this, this, this doesn't qualify as a sacrifice to the Lord. There's a flaw with this sacrifice. But have I got a deal for you today? <laughs> we have pre-approved sheep, oxen, and pigeons <laughs> that we've already pre-inspected. So, you know, you can go and sell this one you can buy one of our pre-approved specials today and you can take that in and it can be sacrificed to the Lord and you don't need to come back and see me. Pre-approved. It's just such a scam. And so, you know, and of course, what, you know, in those situations, what does the prices look like, right? Always jacked up. It's always a premium at the temple. Kind of like buying gas in Gibsons, right? Always at a premium. But where else are you going to go? You're caught. And, and so the priests were really killing it, lining their coffers, running this racket, and making huge profits from the temple sales. They applied the same principle to the temple tax. 
See, you couldn't pay your temple tax with your unholy Roman drachmas because they had the insignia of Caesar on them. And that wasn't honoring to God. And so the priests forced the people to transfer their money, to exchange their money into temple shekels. The, the, the money, the economy of the temple rather than the finances and the, the money of the, uh, the Roman system, the Roman Empire. And so the problem being again, the exchange rate was cranked up, man. You just think you get ripped off at the bank? Try going to the temple 2,000 years ago. But worshipers had no choice. They had to, you know, pay exorbitant exchange rates and be swindled for their pre-approved shekels and the whole animal scheme. And, and people were being taken advantage of. They were being taken advantage of in their worship. And it was disgusting. It was a disgusting scene that Jesus came upon. And it's an incredible picture here that we have of Jesus because this messes with our soft little picture of Jesus when we like stop and think about this. Because somewhere he came in and he observed all of this and he found some chords. In my mind, I, I, I picture him sitting down and beginning to just weave those chords together, looking around, and you know, it's like it's like discipline sometimes when you're a parent. You know, there's there's times when you you bring some anger and you think, boy, I, I wish I didn't react that way. But then there's other times when you're totally in control. And this is Jesus. He's totally in control as he's about to bring some discipline, some judgment to the house of the Lord and he braided together these cords into a whip and then he put that whip to use. A whip's a symbol of authority and a whip is a symbol of judgment and it's, it's quite the contrast to the picture we just saw in the earlier part of this chapter that we were looking at last Sunday in Cana and Galilee where Jesus was probably reclining at tables and enjoying the company of his friends and here in the temple, what's he doing? He's not reclining at the table. He's flipping tables. And Cana, he said to, my mother, to his mother, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then he worked quietly in the background where only his disciples and, and the servants of the household knew that he had performed a miracle, the water into wine. But this time in the temple, there's nothing conspicuous. This time, you know, what he does could not be any more public. You know, you think of the wedding, that's a time of joy and celebration, but this was a judgment at the house of God. Jesus with a whip. And the scene must have been chaos. Now, when you look at this illustration, I, I, I pulled this up for a reason because I wanted us to get a sense of what was really going on that day and try and picture it in our minds. You see that outer area, the court of the Gentiles. When we talk about Jesus cruising around with a whip, and driving people out of there, what does that mean? Well, that whole area, that whole Temple Mount is 36 acres. So, you know, just get a bit of perspective on the size of the court of the Gentiles and what was going on. Let's conservatively call it what? I don't know. 15 acres? That's probably pretty conservative, don't you think? If you look at that. Let's go 12, just to be safe. 
It was a Middle Eastern bazaar, man, <laughs> with livestock. And I, I imagine they were selling souvenirs and gimmicks and tricks and whatever. I, I, I mean, yeah, I think 12 acres is pretty conservative. But that's what it had turned into, a Middle Eastern bazaar. And so let's read this again. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. The estimates are this. 75,000 people, no problem in that area. There's 2.5 million people there for Passover, man. This isn't like a little gimmick. This isn't 10 or 15 sheep. This isn't like a couple hundred people. There are thousands and thousands of people present. This is a massive public display. In the top right-hand corner is the Antonio Fortress where Pilate and his cronies could look down and watch the chaos and have their soldiers ready. I bet he was calling everybody to attention. It's all hands on deck. There is chaos on the Temple Mount. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's quite the contrast to Jesus at a wedding. John just gives us two big extremes here. The joy of a wedding and participating in that and, and righteous anger. You know, all the Gospels tell us the accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. And scholars believe this, I believe this, that Jesus actually cleansed the temple two times. He did it once at the start of his ministry. Right here, this is the start of his ministry. And he did it once more at that final Passover before he was crucified. He did it twice. That's where when you read it, you kind of go, how come these counts are slightly different? Because he actually cleansed the temple twice. The second time he said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's a very interesting like, thing. He's saying, my father's house. He's claiming sonship. He's claiming ownership of this very house. That if it's his father's, it's also his. And he was angry that these leaders and many of these people had forgotten. They had forgotten that worship is about God. The court of the Gentiles represented a place of evangelism. Where, where nations could come. Where people who didn't know the Lord were supposed to be able to draw near they were supposed to be able to experience the presence of God and the worship of God and his grace. And you know, there's a picture here that's a warning for all of us. See, there's a, there's a danger for worshipers of every generation. And the danger is this, is that we become consumers. You know, that we think that worship is about us being comfortable Where we become the focus of worship rather than the Lord becoming the focus of worship. Worship involves sacrifice. Worship involved expense. 
Worship involved time and travel and family commitment. You have to set your priorities right to worship. The scripture says that bringing praise is to be a sacrifice. You know, I think about that area just being filled with the Middle Eastern bazaar and, and you have to think that as people from other nations came and they weren't allowed to draw near like the Israelites were. They, were, they were only allowed to go into that court of the Gentiles and in that court of the Gentiles, they should have been able to learn about worshiping God. The word of God should have been being taught. The court of the Gentiles was supposed to be this welcoming place for those who did not know God to come and experience God and instead it was a place of corruption and a place of greed and it had lost its purpose. And the temple was really a picture of what was going on in the heart of the, of the nation, a spirit, the spiritual condition of a nation and Jesus was angry. Righteously angry, not out of control. He was in control and he was angry that the house of God had been turned into a house of trade. In such a way that it left no room for the seeker. It left no room for the lost. I mean that huge area of the temple. I mean conservatively like a, like a third, more than a third, almost a half of that area was committed for the curious to come and see who is this God who the Israelites worship. Who is Yahweh? And the religious spirit that had crept in taught that, it taught this, that anyone who was like a seeker, anyone who was looking, anyone who was inquiring about God, it it just communicated this, that the house of God is nothing more than a den of thieves. Huh, look at these guys. Worshipping Yahweh. They don't look any different from any of the other nations around them and the gods that they serve. It's just a racket. It's just a scheme. And this danger exists for us today. You know, if we're not if we're not diligent, if we don't search our hearts, church, we can have this dangerous thought that we think 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning is about convenience for me. Or for you. That, that, that Sunday worship is about my comfort. That Sunday worship's about our comfort. And we forget that the primary focus when God's people come together is not comfort, it's worship. That's not about us. It's about God. It's about God. It's about the worship of Jesus. You know, this caused me to just stop and think this week to go, man, you know, we're pretty proud of our laid-back West Coast lifestyle, aren't we? West is best. Who's kidding, right? We all love it. But even in the midst of that, we should be very careful to remember that God is holy. That the Lord is holy. And though I don't think God's you know, against being laid back, we should be cautious that our laid back nature isn't just the fruit of laziness. That it's not just being self-absorbed and religious. Because the worship of God is to be holy. 
I mean, like if we were to just pause right now and to inwardly search our own hearts to have a self-check. What does your worship this morning, what is your worship communicating to Yahweh? What is your heart, what is your worship communicating to Jesus? What is your worship communicating about Jesus to the seeker? How are the lost interpreting what they see? You know, when someone who doesn't know Jesus, a lost person comes to our church, we want them to see people who love Jesus, don't we? We we want them to see people who are here to worship. We, We don't want to put on a religious spirit. We don't want to squeeze out the seeker so religious that we lose this kind of heartfelt concern for for those who are lost. We need to be cautious of this. That we don't slide into this very thing that was happening at the temple. We need Jesus to come and search our own hearts. You know, maybe we need to say to him, Lord, you you can bring the whip into my life because I'd far rather you brought the whip to clean out this temple than for me to go on and wander. Verse 17 says this, that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69, verse 9 actually. For zeal for your house has consumed me. What's consuming us, church? What's consuming our thoughts and our emotions and our time and our money? What's consuming us? Zeal for the house of God. You know, the church exists for three reasons. I'm going to give it to you in three E's. Exaltation, edification, and evangelism. Exaltation, that's worship. That's the very first and primary reason that we come together as the people of God. We're here to worship Jesus. Let's uh, you know, this isn't just like a social time where you can get a good cup of coffee and be greeted by friends and all that kind of stuff. We're here to worship Jesus. Because the scripture tells us that all things were made through him and that all things were made for him. And that we have been saved by him. And we're we're here to worship and the reason why is that we're to bring God glory. We exist for his pleasure and glory. And sometimes, you know, I just get that backwards. I think the Lord exists for my pleasure and my glory. When actually I exist for his He he doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. We exist through him and for him. We're to worship, to exalt him. The church also exists for edification. That means to, to build up, to edify the saints, to build them up, to bring them to maturity, to make disciples and 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 harvest workers. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we're focused and committed to the word of God because we want to edify. We want to build up. We want to become more like Jesus and proclaim and teach him that we can present, as Paul said, everyone mature in Christ. The third reason the church exists is for this, for evangelism. And like, you have to think about it that if the church is getting right exaltation, worship, and getting right edification, Evangelism should just be a natural byproduct. You know that old saying, 
It's a real Calvary Chapel saying, healthy sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep reproduce. And evangelism is the fruit of exaltation and edification. They're, they're the cause and evangelism is the effect. And if you want to be effective in evangelism, I have to tell you this, you have to be in church. You have to be with the people of God. If you're like, if you're like frustrated with your heart for evangelism and you'd like to have more influence, you have to be with the people of God. You, you have to be exalting God and you have to be growing, being edified. And if you're not doing those two things, you will not get the third result of evangelism. You have to have a heart for worship and a heart to mature because that's the ground that cultivates evangelism. You know, when we talk about worship, I think, you know, there's this danger that we, we crunch that down to, to our time of singing, music, but worship is all-encompassing, right? That's all of life. All of life is worship. Work is worship. The handling of my finances is worship. Family life is worship. Marriage is worship. And all of those things we're worshiping to bring glory to God, to Jesus. And one of the ways we get to express our worship is together, corporately. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Verse 18 says this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? <laughs> it's funny, you know, they never said, why are you doing this? What do you think you're doing? Why are you doing it? They didn't say that. Because every single person there knew that the house of God needed cleansing. Just like you and I know that this temple, it always needs cleansing. It needs it. So the question wasn't, you know, why are you doing this? But the question was this. By what authority are you doing this? No one asked you to do this. Who's given you the authority to do this? And Jesus said this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The word that Jesus used when he said temple actually specifically refers to the Holy of Holies. You know, when you stop and think about the life of Jesus, his life truly was the Holy of Holies. He's the temple of God. And we're to be that. Our lives is, are to be the, the Holy of Holies of God, that, that place for his presence. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Paul said. I think that maybe Jesus pointed to himself. You know, he, he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. And that's what actually happened. Three years later, at Passover, they nailed him to a cross. And he died on that cross. And three days, he was buried. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And so what Jesus claimed when they asked him, who gave you the authority? He said, I have the authority to raise up my own life. He actually tells that, us that in John chapter 10 verse 18 when he speaks of his life he says this no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again this charge I have received from the father Jesus had authority from the father 
So the Jews said to him, verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Herod the Great actually was uh, renovating this temple. He's gone by this point in time, but he had started the process of the renovation of this temple. It started 20 years before the birth of Jesus. And the temple underwent this ongoing renovation actually until A.D. 64. So over 80 years this went on. And the crazy thing is, is it A.D. 70, what happened? The temple was destroyed by the Romans. After almost 85 years of renovations. And so it's a little halfway, you know, a little over halfway through its reno. And it's easy to see why the, the Jews thought Jesus was crazy. Destroy it. We've been renovating this for, for all these years. They estimate that there was 18,000 workers working on that temple for over that period of time. You'll destroy it in three days. But we know this, that Jesus was speaking about his body because John tells us. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's amazing right there. They put the word of Jesus on par with scripture. They placed them right, right beside one another, and, and that's pretty interesting with regards to what that implies about Jesus right there. But John's already told us, he is the Logos. He is the word of God. The words of Jesus were accepted equally with scripture. And then verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Crazy as you read that. I mean, many believed in Jesus at that time. They saw the miracles he was doing. They saw the signs that he was performing. They saw what he did at the temple. And they put their faith in him. But the script, John tells us here that he himself did not believe in them. And here's why he didn't believe in them. Because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew the fickle nature of the heart of mankind. And it's amazing because, John, I wish we could go on and just pull this all together sometimes. Uh, we could just go for hours and hours. But we'll leave it hanging here to say this, that, that the first illustration of this will be Nicodemus. Jesus knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus. And what did he tell Nicodemus, church? Do you remember? He said this, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Yeah, he knew it was in Nicodemus' heart. And he knew it was, even though they believed in him, he knew that they must be born again. They must receive the new nature. I actually want to read that a little bit of chapter three. Can we go on? Actually, let's read. Verse 24 of chapter 2, and then we'll just read through to get a bit of the, the flow of what's happening here. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man. 
for he himself knew what was in man. Now John gives us an illustration. It's Nicodemus. Now there was a man. Well, we know what's in him. We know what's in him. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, isn't it interesting? Jesus knows what's in the heart of the man. Even Nicodemus, he has to come by night. That's telling us about his heart. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is where John's gonna take us. This amazing picture, John chapter two leaves us. We get, get this Great contrast of Jesus, his desire to fellowship and supply and celebrate joy with his people out of, out of wine, but then the reality of this, that he'll righteously clean his temple, that he'll drive out wickedness. And you know, I just, I just think, you know, as we, we're about to come to the Lord's table this morning and celebrate communion, I just think that this is a great time to say, Lord, what's this temple look like? If this is to be the holy of holies where your spirit dwells, if my life is the house of God, then God, I need you to come and clean it. You know, Lord, what's the outer court of my life look like? What is the outside court that everybody else sees and should communicate the gospel? What's it looking like? Is it just religious and a mess and... And all the, the trappings of religion, Jesus, I need you to just come in and bring the whip and drive it out of me again, Lord. That I'd reflect you and I'd reflect what, you're to, what we're to be about, Lord. That I'd reflect worship. That, I, that I'd be edified, Lord. That I'd be built up in my faith, Lord. That I, that I could be that one, that our church could be those whose lives are just evangelistic, that, that we're just healthy because we allow God to come and clean his temple. And so this morning, you know, we're gonna come to the, come to the table. Actually, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. And I just, I just wanna leave you with that thought as you come to the table. Don't come to the table. Just don't come to the table unless you can say to Jesus, you got free reign. You got free reign to just drive out the stuff that you need to drive out. And, and, and look, maybe you're like the seeker here this morning. You're just like checking it out and you're observing and you just wanted to see what this church was all about or what these crazy people are all about. We won't look down on you if you just want to refrain and say, wow, I'm just checking things out this morning. And so look, the table is, is for those who, you know, Jesus I think of him reclining at that wedding. We, we table with him. It's fellowship. It's saying, Jesus, I, I come to the table and I recognize that, that this bread is a picture of your body. This cup is a picture of your blood. You're the Passover lamb. You're my life. You're my food. You're my sustenance. You're my drink. You're my spiritual supply. 
And Jesus, I just want to participate with you. I want to, I want to come to the table. And so I like, because of that, Lord, I just give you the freedom to come and search my heart again. And if you need to bring a whip, I, I just trust you. I trust you to drive out the things that I can't even see. You know, I think that that's part of the reality of that story is that some of those folks could not even see what the temple had become. And sometimes it's hard for us to see what the temple of our lives has, have become. And, and this is when we can just reevaluate as we come to the table. And so we're going to worship. And as your heart's prepared, I just invite you to come and receive these elements. And so would you guys stand with me? Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the word of God. And Lord, it's amazing that um, we, the church, were called the body of Christ. Your word says that we are your temple. And Lord, the disciples recognized that you had a zeal for the house of God that consumed you. And Lord, you desire that we would be that very house of God. Lord, you have a zeal for us, Lord. You're seeking us. You're searching us. You're desiring more of us. And Lord, we, we don't want any of the, just the trappings of religion to be in the way this morning. We want to have our hearts, Lord. And so God, come and search our hearts, we pray, as we sing, Lord, as we worship, as we consider your word this morning. Just come and search our hearts, Lord. Cleanse the outer court, we pray. See, Lord, as David said, if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and cleanse us, we pray, that you'd find a home here for yourself to be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.